Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And this is the second of second episode in our series on nihilism. Um, if you remember, if you listened to the first episode, our goal is really to kind of perform a genealogy of nihilism, its meaning and how it shifted over time and so on. In the first episode, we talked about uh, Johann Fichte's philosophy and Frederick Jacobi's charge against him, basically calling his philosophy nihilism. In this episode, we're going to explore the emergence of nihilism in Russia during the 19th century, essentially kind of exploring nihilism as a subculture uh, through the incredibly important uh, Russian novel Fathers and Sons. So have you read this? I have not. Nope. This is an education for me. All right. Uh, So yeah, we're going to read some excerpts from that. Really, one of the characters in this novel is uh, called a nihilist and defines himself as a nihilist. So uh, that's kind of where this comes from. It really popularizes the term. So throughout this uh, series, our goal kind of is to present nihilism as the negation or the confrontation to the dominant discourse at the time. So when we begin talking about Russian nihilism specifically, um, it's really a response to kind of the ideological totalitarianism of two things, the autocracy in the form of the czar mm-hmm. and orthodoxy in the form of the church. So these are the two sort of dominant discourses at the time that were really ruling Russian life, not to mention serfdom, which we'll talk about in a second. But in addition to those two ideological things, the material world was rapidly transforming as well. Here we're talking about the like sort of the middle of the 1800s, middle of the 19th century. Um, the serfs were quote unquote freed from serfdom by Tsar Alexander II in 1861. Though this was really an attempt to liberalize the economy more than it was related to like any human rights effort, uh, really. Um, And in fact, this is just solidified by an 1856 speech that Alexander gave to Russian nobility where he said, quote, all of you understand that the existing conditions of owning souls cannot remain unchanged. It is better to begin eliminating serfdom from above than to wait until it begins to eliminate itself from below. Essentially, he's assuring the nobility throughout the entire campaign that freeing the serfs is in their best interest because... They are either going to revolt against the system, or if we can free them ourselves, essentially me as a czar, if I can do this, that will avoid the result, the revolt, and it will function to liberalize the economy in a way where the nobility will essentially be able to maintain control. So he basically eliminates serfdom, but only does it in a way to try to, I mean, I'm not trying to say give his personal motivation for doing this, but his words essentially kind of make it sound like he's doing it so that there's no revolution that he has to deal with and that the nobility will still be sort of entrenched as the quasi elite in society. Um, Of course, we know if you know anything about Russian history that the revolution was coming anyways, regardless of what he did. Um, and Alexander himself ends up getting assassinated. But that's a whole other story. Uh, We're not going to have time to go into all of Russian history right now. Um, But this social milieu results in a growing divide between the quote-unquote sort of old-school generation and the younger generation. The old-school generation kind of is defined as like romantics, idealists, and liberals. And the younger generation are materialists, 
nihilist, which we'll get to, and much more revolutionary politically. Um, I just have a quote here from an article by Richard Freeborn, who's a professor of Russian literature. He describes kind of this dichotomy of the era very well. In fact, he's actually the translator of this version of Fathers and Sons that I have as well. He says, quote, the reformist period on the eve of emancipation of the serfs has come to be known as a revolutionary situation, that there was a desire for revolution in the hearts and minds of leading sections of the younger generation is not in any doubt. The older generation was committed to change, but on gradualist principles. Revolution in their eyes with peasant unrest on the scale of the Pugachev uprising was abhorrent. Thus, a fairly clear alignment of interests began to emerge in the ranks of the Russian intelligentsia. The left-wing younger intelligentsia were in favor of any change, even to the extent of violent revolutionary overthrow of the autocracy. The more right-wing older generation were in favor of gradual changes of a liberal democratic character, which would rid Russia of its most obviously backward anomalies and allow it to become more modern and westernized. For literature, as for all those concerned with projecting the image of the age, it was a question of asking who and what. Who was to be the activist type best suited to achieve the necessary changes, and what form were these changes to take? So we have this sort of divide in Russian society at the time between the more or less revolutionaries and the conservatives who really didn't want the status quo. They wanted change, but they wanted it in a far more gradualist uh, sense. They wanted to, they were liberals. Let, let's just say that's what it is. This term gets thrown around all the time describing this older generation. They were liberals. They wanted to liberalize the economy um, and so forth. They wanted to maintain inequality in the system because it benefited them and so on, at least in theory. Okay, enter into this picture the novel Father and Sons. It's in the midst of all of this that Ivan Turgenev publishes one of the most influential Russian novels of all time. It's called Fathers and Sons. He publishes this in 1862. Now, what does this have to do possibly with nihilism? Uh, we're going to get to that. One of the characters is self-defined as a nihilist and is what really popularizes this term. Do you have anything before we continue? No, I'm just contextualizing right here with like the actual build up to the more famous revolutions yep. in, in 1905 and 1917. So that's what I was trying to frame right here. We might be doing an episode on these in the future, although it is a little bit saturated on Russian revolutionary like mm -hmm. like like content online yep. right now. But we still might do our take on it anyway. So that's all I was doing. So just keep cool. keep on going. Keep keep helping me. Build okay, this I'm going to do a super super short synopsis um, of the book. I'm not going to go through the entire plot line. Uh, we don't, that's not necessary for our purposes. Essentially, Fathers and Sons follows two friends, Arkady and Bizarov. Um, Arkady has just graduated from university in the beginning of the book, and he and Bizarov go to stay at his father's estate. His father is like small-scale nobility. Um, keep in mind, this is in the middle of this time when the serfs are being freed uh, from serfdom, etc. So there's all kinds of unique things happening here. Um, so as a result, in the book, it's depict this sort of turmoil is depicted by uh, all kinds of different events that happen. But there's a lot of interesting conversations between Arkady Bizarov and Arkady's father Nikolai and his uncle Pavel. Um, so this discourse that they have back and forth, really, uh, the author uses to illuminate this divide, and it's during these discussions that Bizarov identifies as a nihilist. 
technically it's earlier, I'm gonna read the excerpt in a second, um, Arkady describes him as a nihilist first. Um, so we're gonna talk about what that means for him to be a nihilist in a few minutes. Um, so they go and stay on the estate of Arkady's father. Then the two men decide to go visit a relative of Arkady's uh, in a neighboring province. On the way there, they meet a wealthy woman named Madame Odenzova. And Bazarov falls in love. Now, this presents a huge problem for Bazarov because he is a nihilist. And this is the main internal conflict for this character throughout the novel is him trying to reconcile his nihilism and his romantic love for this woman. Um, the rest of the book basically is Arkady and Bazarov drifting apart um, ideologically, and I guess they're just like at different points in their lives, etc. I'm obviously very simplifying here. Um, Bazarov spends some time helping his father, who is like a local doctor. He's distracted mentally by this extreme love that he has and this internal contradiction, etc. And he fails to take necessary precautions. And while he's performing an autopsy, he gets blood poisoning and falls deathly ill. Now, I'm going to read an excerpt from this point in the book just so you can see kind of how this goes down. Um, this is our Bazarov essentially on his deathbed and his love, Odinsova, comes to visit him. So I'm um, picking up there. She glanced at Bazarov and stood stock still in the doorway. So, sh so shocking to her was the sight of the inflamed and simultaneously corpse-like face with its glazed eyes directed at her. She was quite simply seized by a chill and enervating terror. She thought that she would not have felt such terror if she had really loved him. Uh, that flashed a moment through her mind. Thank you, he forced himself to stay. I hadn't expected this. It's an act of kindness, you see. We are seeing each other again, as you promised. Uh, I'm going to skip some sentences throughout here. I'm not going to read this entire thing. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Thank you, Bizarre repeated. It's right royal of you. I've been told that royalty also visit the dying. I hope, oh, let's start by speaking the truth. It's the end for me. I've been run over, and it turns out it's pointless to think about the future. Death may be an old joke, but for each of us, it's as new as ever. So far, I've faced up to it, but unconsciousness is on its way, and then put, he feebly waves his hand. Well, what I've got to tell you is, I've loved you. That didn't have any meaning then, and it's got even less now. Love is just a form of being, and now my own form is already disintegrating. I'll say, rather, what a wonderful person you are, and how here you are standing in front of me, looking so beautiful. She shuddered despite herself. It doesn't matter. Don't be anxious. Don't sit down over there. Do sit down over there. Don't come close to me. After all, my illness is infectious. She rapidly crossed the room and sat down in an armchair besides the divan on which Bizarre was lying. Kindness itself, he whispered. Oh, how close you are and how young and fresh and clean in this foul room. Well, goodbye. Live a long life. That's best of all. And enjoy it while there's time. You can see what an ugly spectacle I am. A half-crushed worm and still showing off. And I used to think, after all, I'll do a whole mess of things. I'll not die. No way. There's a task to be done, and I am a giant. And now the giant's only task is to die decently. Although no one cares a damn about that. Still, I won't start wagging my tail. Bazara fell silent and started to feel with his hands for his glass. She gave him something to drink, fearful to breathe and without taking off her glove. You'll forget me, he started saying again. The dead are no companions for the living. My father will say to you, just look at what a, Russian, a man Russia is losing. That's all nonsense, but don't disillusion the old man. Whatever gives a child comfort, you know what I mean? 
and be kind to my mother after all. People like them won't find the world over, though you search it with a torch by daylight. I'm needed by Russia. No, obviously I'm not needed. And who is needed? The shoemaker's needed. The tailor's needed. The butcher. He sells meat. The butcher. Stop, I'm losing my way. There's a forest here. Bazarov placed his hand on his forehead. She bent over. I'm here. He instantly seized her hand and raised himself up. Goodbye, he said with a sudden force, and his eyes glittered with a final brilliance. Goodbye. Listen, you know I never kissed you. Then, blow on the dying lamp and let it go out. She pressed her lips to her to his forehead. And that's enough, he said, and dropped back onto the pillow. Now, darkness. Bizarra was destined not to wake up again. So that's kind of, it's not the end of the book. There's a few more pages, but that's Bizarra's final death. Um, his love is there. She never expresses her love for him. Um, and so he dies with kind of, the, the second half of the novel basically is him wrestling with this internal conflict, which I think is kind of interesting because it reflects now putting it in kind of a modern context probably an internal conflict that any would-be revolutionary or any activist probably at some point deals with uh, this sort of materialism, etc., and then kind of romantic emotion and love and so forth. So the novel, the second half, is essentially a bizarre struggle with this. And it's kind of, I mean, unfortunate, but as a literary device, um, interesting that he dies. He never see, follows through, uh, right? It's she never says she loves him. He never goes the way of love. He never goes the way of pure nihilism. He suffers this untimely death and never sees that contradiction resolved, um, perhaps because there is uh, no resolution to be had. Okay, that's like I said, in a nutshell, uh, going through the main events of the novel. I do want to say though, like everyone should probably just read this book at some point. It's not that long, it's like 200 pages or less. Um, and it really belongs with like the great works of literature, not because it's like the best book ever written or anything, but because it is the first really full modern Russian novel, like in history of Russia. And we all know what comes uh, afterward. We have Chernyshevsky and Dostoevsky mm-hmm. and Tolstoy and so forth. Um, Turgenev is really the first, this Fathers and Sons is really the first like in that lineage. Also, it's one of those things that's so prevalent in like the global zeitgeist because it is such an important piece of literature that once you read it, you'll hear it referred to all of the time. Like now that I've, I read it a couple of years ago, I hear like Bazarov just mentioned all the time on television shows, et cetera, and Fathers and Sons and like so forth. It's really weird. It's just one of those things that if you've never experienced it, you would never, those would just completely pat, you'd never have any idea what they're talking about and you just like ignore it. But once you know, then you pick it up all of the time. So it's uh, really interesting. Okay, now I'm gonna read some excerpts that will give us an idea of what it means for Bazarov to be a nihilist. So the first one is a conversation that Arkady is having with his father, Nikolai, and his uncle, Pavel. Um, Okay. Uh, Exactly, exactly. So that doctor's his father, hmm, Pavel said. Well, this gentleman, this Bazarov, what is what precisely? What is Bazarov, Arkady grinned? Do you want me, uncle, to tell you precisely what he is? Please be good enough, nephew. He's a nihilist. What? asked Nikolai. While Pavel raised his knife in the air with a piece of butter on the end of the blade and remained motionless, he's a nihilist, repeated Arkady. A nihilist, said Nikolai. That is from the Latin nihil, nothing, so far as I can judge. Therefore, the word denotes a man who doesn't recognize anything. Say, rather, who doesn't respect anything, added Pavel, and once more busied himself with the butter. 
who approaches everything from a critical point of view, remarked Arkady. Isn't that the same thing? No, it is not the same thing. A nihilist is a man who doesn't acknowledge any authorities, who doesn't accept a single principle on faith, no matter how much that principle may be surrounded by respect. And that's a good thing, is it? Interjected Pavel. It depends on who you are, uncle. It's a good thing for one man and a bad thing for another. Is that so? Well, I can see it's not for us. We, men of another age, we suppose that without principles, without principles accepted, as you put it, on faith, we can't take a single step. We can't even breathe. So God grant you good health and the rank of general, and we'll all admire you from afar, you gentlemen. What do you call yourselves? Nihilists, Arkady pronounced clearly. Yes, previously there used to be Hegelians. Now there are nihilists. Let's wait and see how you get on in a vacuum, an airless space. Now please, brother, Nikolai, ring the bell. It's time I had my cocoa. So that's kind of the first time we're introduced to this concept of nihilism in the book, this discussion between Arkady and his father and uncle. But I think the intriguing thing here is is the intersection between quote-unquote pop culture here in the novel and then like philosophy in this case, like 100%. specifically philosophy and how much more weight perhaps something like this can provide a worldview. I was, it's, it, nihilism is not an ideology, but more like a worldview than, than the back and forth philosophical discussions we were talking about, even in the introductory episode with like right. Ficht and, and whatnot. Like, like we love those discussions and I actually really want to dig more into them like at a later date, but is like the general population, like, re, like, are they really taking part in this? Yeah, is there a reflexive not. relationship between like culture and then the philosophy? This clearly reveals that. Mm -hmm. So I would argue, again, Nick's educating me on this topic since it's his wheelhouse and not mine. This would be as a historian, actually more valuable, right? The uh, non, 100%. right? Like the, 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 the fiction here um, speaks more to the changing of discourse than than the I don't know that I want to call philosophy like a nonfiction. Um, yeah. I think we're, we're, there, there's a there's a line that we can probably cross there. But regardless, you get what I'm saying, mm -hmm. right? Then the academic sphere not nearly as impactful as the popular sphere. I mean, even today, if we in can framing, pair, like in framing, right? Two like, works like Jacobi's letter to Fichte or Fathers and Sons. Very clearly, Fathers and Sons has had a global impact where literally, like, I don't know, less than a, th uh, what, I don't want to put a number on it, but like Fichte, Jacobi's letter to Fichte is like this really obscure piece, right? That like you would only ever come across if you were a uh, philosopher. And even then you'd have to be super hardcore into German idealism or nihilism. That's really only two times you're ever going to come across that letter. Whereas this, like you said, yeah, it's like globally, both at the time and still to this day, influential. Well, and it speaks to like like the production of knowledge, and we're not mm -hmm. going to go back into the on education episode that we recently published. But it's kind of the similar thing, at least as a historian that I'm seeing, where like a pop culture narrative of history tends to be more generally accepted than the actual like truth of history, like the Paul Revere <laughs> ride or something right. along those lines. That, that that's just completely like wrong, mm -hmm. and yet, it, excuse right. me, because of the like the way it is delivered and yeah. like the 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 scale at which it's delivered. It ends up being like much more popular. In this case, 100%. we're not saying this is this is myth, though. So this is not myth. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not real, clearly. But like, the lines are blurred, right? Which is kind of the interesting thing. Like, Bazarov clearly is just an invented character, but he's a reflection of a subculture that existed and was really emerging at the time. And like the academics on this, the analysts of nihilism being used in Fathers and Sons is essentially that this group of individuals existed in Russia at the time, but it was really Turgenev that put like the label on it. He called them nihilists and he was the first to do so. And then it takes off, which we'll talk about 
in a second. I have well, one. and like really driving it home, even the quote you read is, I mean, it, it's neat and tidy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a neat and tidy understanding of right. the nihilist discourse rather than that long back oh, and yeah. forth. Like, so that's yeah. why I think it's also more popular. It's just oh, much yeah. more easy for us, uh, like simpletons like myself, to like really grapple well, with. Yeah, like yeah. anyone like, hey, read this book and anyone can do it. But if yeah. I'm like, here's Jacobi and Fichte and read yeah. these two, like no one's doing it. That's <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. Okay, I have one more quote. Uh, where they are having discourse, and Bazarov himself is involved in this scene. Um, this is Nikolai, who's Arkady's father, Pavel, who's Arkady's um, uncle, Arkady himself, and Bazarov. Um, okay, let's see, where am I going? After this, I don't understand you. You are insulting the Russian people. How is it possible not to recognize principles and rules on the strength of what you are acting? I already told you, uncle, that we don't recognize any authorities, Arkady broke in. We are acting on the strength of what we consider useful, said Bazarov. At the present time, condemnation is more useful than everything else, so we condemn. Everything? Everything. What? Not only art and poetry, but it's terrible to think what else. Everything, Bazarov repeated with inexpressible calmness. Pavel stared at him. He hadn't anticipated this, but Arkady even had even gone red with pleasure. However, permit me to say this, Nikolai started saying, you're condemning everything, or to be more precise, you're pulling everything down, but surely you've got to build something as well. That's not for us to do. First, we've got to clear the ground. I love this quote because this is the sort of conflict between the old guard in this case and the new nihilists, right? Um, Nikolai, who very clearly represents the old guard, said, you're condemning everything, or to be more precise, you're pulling everything down, but surely you've got to build something else, right? This is sort of like the, if you're going to tear things down, you must have some idea of right. how the future is going to go, right? And I just love Bazarov's uh, response. That's not for us to do. First, we've got to clear the ground, right? It's like the scorch the earth mentality where it's not for us to build the future. All that we can do is condemn because everything else is worthless. We need to clear the ground so that the new society can be born from there. There are bits of like post-structuralism for in sure. here. Like we're not... I, I'm not going to say this is a post-structuralist work, but there are like definitely like hues and hints of mm-hmm. like that more 20th century post-structural thinking. And again, it, what was this, 1862, you mm-hmm. said? Yeah, I mean, you could see this as a clear like philosophical like precursor to like that way of thinking. Yep. Um, and, and we've already done episodes on post-structuralism, so go back mm-hmm. and check those out. So there's obviously more, but that's enough of our excerpts of like what nihilism is in this novel, right? No respect for authority, no respect for any existing ideology, regardless of what the faith is that exists. And very clearly they're attacking the autocracy and uh, orthodoxy, right? Religion of the time. Um, Also in here throughout is uh, materialism. Our, uh, sorry, Bazarov himself is kind of like an amateur scientist. So he's doing all these experiments He's dissecting frogs. Uh, Like I mentioned, he's doing an autopsy on a body. That's where he uh, gets sick and eventually dies. Uh, So there's actually a lot of scientism in this era in Russia, but in this novel throughout as well, which is really, really interesting. Um, We have an episode on scientism as well. Um, So he's a materialist. He's a nihilist, which means essentially that he stands for nothing except for Mm -hmm. condemnation, critique, and destruction. Um, only to ad- to destroy and to start anew. And obviously, those clearly, those quotes that I read uh, are sort of in the first half of the novel. He has yet to meet his uh, the woman that he falls in love with, which then leads him down this path of having to wrestle with his internal contradictions. And in the end, he admits, with you, which you kind of got from the quote that I read on his deathbed, that death trumps all. Um, 
So Bazarov is like this complicated character throughout in history, right? In Russian literature and in just literature overall. He's both a hero in his introduction as like a staunch nihilist. He becomes a hero for the nihilist movement in Russia. But then he becomes sort of like human and even like more heroic through his like human struggle as this nihilist that also falls in love. So he's dealing with nihilism and materialism and emotion and ideas and so forth. So it's kind of interesting. And like I mentioned earlier, his death sort of quote unquote frees him from this internal struggle. So he never sees it through to his to its conclusion. And as a result, the reader never sees it through to its conclusion either. So the reader is kind of left wondering what happens to this nihilist that falls in love? We never know. He never even has his love reciprocated. He dies, right? Okay. Now I'm going to go into a really, really interesting connection to uh, kind of what we talked about in the previous episode of idealism. Um, like I said, last time we talked about Fichte's philosophy at length and so forth. Fichte was an important part of the lineage of idealism, uh, which is like Descartes and Berkeley and Kant and then German idealism specifically, which is like Kant, Fichte. Um, and then Jared last asked in the last episode, which is a really good question, uh, what about Hegel? Well, Hegel comes after Fichte in sort of the lineage of German idealism. So it's like Kant, Fichte, and obviously there are others, I'm just simplifying here, but Kant, Fichte, and Hegel. So Hegel's like the contemporary of Fichte. We're not gonna cover Hegel here because his philosophy isn't super important to nihilism, um, but I do wanna actually cover his thought eventually at some point. Probably if we start talking about consciousness, uh, we can go there. Um, after Hegel in this lineage of journal, German idealism become, comes the young Hegelians. If you've studied uh, any of Hegel's thought or idealism or anything, even Marx in depth, uh, you've heard of the young Hegelians. They were a group of mostly German philosophers some of whom were actually students of Hegel uh, and attended his lectures, etc. He died in 1831. Prominent members of the Young Hegelians were Bruno Bauer, these mm -hmm. names are going to sound familiar, Bruno Bauer, Max Stirner, Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, and others. Um, in the late 1830s, these men frequently met in Berlin. So Bruno Bauer was teaching at the University of Berlin at the time. Max Stirner was there as well, though he could not find a teaching position, which is interesting. Many of these men faced ostracization as a result of their ideas. In fact, many of them were in school at the same time, uh, Marx, Bauer, etc. I guess Bauer is kind of older. He wasn't actually a student of uh, Hegel. But anyways, um, basically, like Marx's story, they said, you know, don't submit your thesis here. It's you're too controversial and we won't approve it. And so he had to go to another university. I want to say the University of Jena is where he finally got his PhD. Um, so they're hugely controversial. And they're all in Berlin at the time, in and out, and meeting, having meetings about philosophy and so forth. Their works at the time typically either supported or critique uh, Hegel's idealism in various ways. Uh, their, I, their challenge is really wrestling with Hegel and his legacy and what it means for philosophy and etc. So they're publishing all these books and having meetings and discourse, etc. Okay. They also critique and support each other in uh, various works. For example, like if you know anything about Marx and Engels' body of work, in 1846 they write The German Ideology, which is a satire directly targeted toward Bruno Bauer and Max Stirner. Engels and Marx eventually have a falling out with the young Hegelians and no longer consider themselves a part of that group. Uh, yeah, whatever. That's, we're not talking about their history here. Anyways, to bring this full circle, there's a very interesting connection to fathers and sons and, as a result, Russian nihilism. 
Ivan Turgenev, who published Fathers and Sons, came from a fairly wealthy family in Russia, and he spent time studying philosophy at the University of Berlin between 1838 and 1841. Um, as I mentioned, Bruno Bauer was actually teaching at the University of Berlin at that time, so certainly they would have crossed paths. It's even possible that Turgenev took classes, attended lectures by Bruno Bauer. It's also possible that he would have crossed paths with Stirner, Marx, and Engels, during this period as they're all in Berlin and all part of the same like philosophical circles. So there's the, even this like weird Small connection world. between yeah. Fichte, right, Hegel, the young Hegelians, Bauer, Marx, Stirner, etc. And Turgenev in Russia just happens to be studying in Berlin at the time. And he actually talks about in some of his essays and stuff, he admits that Bizarrov is a reflection of kind of his experience, right, internalizing the young Hegelians and their ideas and materialism and perhaps a shift away from idealism and like all of these things. So there's a very interesting connection there. And then nihilism in Russia, which we'll talk about in a future episode, gets fully wrapped up into the socialist movement in Russia, uh, etc., in various ways. Uh, with that, that'll be for another episode, though, probably the next one, maybe we'll see. Okay, so the importance of fathers and sons. Outside of Russia, Fathers and Sons, like I said, was the first fully modern Russian novel, and it was the first to receive praise from Western audiences. It also introduced Russian culture to the rest of the world, uh, at least the Western world, on a wide scale. So being the first uh, modern Russian novel, being the first one that got praise from Western critics, it had a fairly wide distribution relatively at the time, and it's a really... I don't want to call it realist yet because it's a very specific type of Russian literature that uh, I don't know if this actually qualifies as. Um, chronologically, they're separated by a few years. But it is pretty, it's an honest and real depiction of what life was like in Russia at the time. So people in the rest of the world that are reading this book are getting insights into what life is like in Russia that they had never gotten before. And like we said, this is a work of fiction, but it's pretty real of like the relationships between the people and what was going on economically. And like Nikolai, this, this sort of middle noble that's Arkady's father has serfs and right, they deal with this. And it's interesting, Bazarov goes out on his estate and hangs out with the serfs and, uh, and so forth. So there's all these interesting dynamics. Um, so it's incredibly important outside of Russia. Let's talk about inside of Russia, how this is received. It's kind of interesting because he depicts, right, this old guard that are conservative and idealists and this new guard, which are kind of like nihilist revolutionaries. Neither group was very happy with the novel. The old guard kind of felt like they were portrayed as sort of outdated and closed-minded and so forth. And the young generation felt as if Bizarrov as this like caricature was cold and calculated and unforgiving and like so forth. Until Dmitry Pizarev writes an essay in support of Fathers and Sons and specifically Bazarov. We're not going to go to a whole bio of who Pisarev is. Just know that he was like a radical critic, a literary critic, and so forth. He wrote a couple of essays, actually, celebrating Bazarov as the ideal for his companions to live up to. So basically, he says... We shouldn't be critiquing this work. We shouldn't even be critiquing Bazarov and his stances. We should be celebrating them. And in fact, it's a model that we ourselves should be modeling ourselves after if we are truly going to be radical revolutionaries and not just liberals like the old generation uh, is. So Pisarev actually comes out in support. And as a result, 
Turgenev's depiction of Bazarov as a nihilist sort of it comes to, like I kind of alluded to earlier, define this subculture in Russia. The nihilists uh, sort of modern themselves. It's kind of interesting. It's like this reflexive relationship, like you mentioned earlier. There's this nihilist subculture that doesn't really have a name. Turgenev describes it and gives it a name. Then the subculture modifies itself to be more like Turgenev's depiction of the nihilist subculture, right? So it's like this cycle. So he both gives a name to the culture that exists and then the culture itself modifies to be more in line with this depiction, this caricature that he creates in the form of Bizarrov. Reminds me of like 70s punk rock. What the hell? No, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a perfect example of like yeah. what we're trying to get to here is like this is a subculture in Russia at the time that is yeah. defined by this lack of respect for authority like yeah. on and yeah, on. Yeah, really, really. Yeah. yeah, anyway. For sure. Yeah. Um, there's a really good book called Defense of Nihilism that actually just came out not that long ago. Um, and they describe sort of this period and the importance of fathers and sons. And they say, quote, inspired by this ideal that is Bizarrov and fathers and son, the nihilist movement started pressing for more freedoms, more knowledge, and less religious tradition. Many were women who treated, who wanted privileges such as being allowed to go to university. Nihilism was an early feminist movement in Russia, which is kind of interesting. So essentially, Turgenev's character, Bazarov, especially after Pisarev's endorsement, makes nihilism quote-unquote cool, right? Um, Basically, Fathers and Sons, at least partially, makes nihilism in vogue in Russia. However, it will very quickly become a pejorative in the next few decades. And like I said, there's this interesting relationship where it gets both adopted by in some capacity and rejected by the socialist movement uh, that is going to come, which uh, we most people are familiar with. In fact, to this day in leftist circles, most of the time, socialists specifically uh, used nihilism as a pejorative. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. Um, okay, so that's fathers and sons, like in a nutshell. We really can't escape talking about nihilism in literature unless we also talk about Chernyshevsky and what is to be done and Dostoyevsky, etc. We're not going to do that in this episode, yeah. though. Um, fathers and sons is enough for us to make a point about the where nihilism comes from in Russian culture in this capacity. We'll probably talk about what is to be done and some of Dostoevsky in the next episode. In the next episode, we're going to talk about Russian nihilism as a revolutionary political movement, which I think most people are probably more familiar with, uh, revolutionary nihilism. It comes out of Russia in this time. So we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Do you have anything to add? No, just a just a reminder. Like this, this is where we get our modern like incarnation or connotations. Like this is really like the birth of what what modern nihilism looks like. Even though we didn't count it as like the origins with Jacobi and Fichte in the last episode. Like what what what, what listeners might understand as nihilism. This is like its most like popular birth. So right. this, even though the other one was the introductory episode, mm-hmm. and, and we did our due diligence by going back yeah. into its philosophical origins, this is where nihilism becomes like nihilism, and then all yep. of the other derivatives, uh, political, literary. That's where this is going to come from. So exactly. I'm, like so, I said, yeah. like last one was kind of like the preface. This yeah. is where we really are diving in. Yep. Um, and then Nietzsche takes it even further, which clearly mm-hmm. we'll cover when the time comes. Um, so yeah, that's what's up next is episode on revolutionary nihilism in Russia. Um, catch us online, revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters for making this possible. Um, if you really want to support what we do, you can become a patron on Patreon and do that there. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.